morning. What a prayer. There's so much in this prayer. In so many places we could go today. Um, so let's ask for the Lord's help. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it brings life. It brings clarity. It uh, gives us counsel in times of need. And Lord Jesus, we, we pray that you would teach us now and that we would have ears to hear what you have to say to us as individuals, as a church, as your people, your bride. Amen. Well, uh, let me ask a question. Um, what, what's one thing do you think you could do to help those who don't know God to experience the reality of God? What's one thing you could do to help those who don't know God to experience the reality of God? Interact with me a little bit here. Pray for them. Yeah. Show them God's love. Share your story. Yeah. Be quiet and stop showing them what God isn't. Yeah. Good one. Introduce them to the word. Yeah. Forgiveness. Forgive them. Yeah. Yeah. Give them the benefit of the doubt. I like it. Anything else? Convince them to come to church. <laughs> Good. All these things, I reckon, are fantastic things, right? Um, I, I want to uh, have a look at uh, this prayer. And um, last week we looked at uh, this prayer, specifically at verse 4, where... Uh, Jesus said, I've glorified you, Father, by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. And uh, can you remember what the work was? For those who are here, what was the work? Jesus started with nothing. Yeah, he'd make disciples, disciples that would multiply, right? Well, uh, that was his purpose, um, his purpose was also to go to the cross for our sins. But I want us to notice something else in this passage. And um, I want to give you a brief overview and then focus in on one particular area. Um, I want you to notice that Jesus prays for actually three people in, in his prayer. And remember that at the time of this prayer, it's not just the culmination of his whole uh, earthly life, right? Tomorrow he's going to be going to the cross, uh, it's actually the culmination of uh, a night and a special time that he spent with his disciples. From chapter 13, uh, we, we hear him spending the Passover uh, feast with his disciples and he's been teaching them and, and whatnot. And then he comes here and he says, Father, again, that relational nature of Jesus with his father. And he prays, first of all, for himself. He says, glorify me, not that I look good 
but that you would be glorified. Right? That, that just epitomises Jesus' whole life. He lived for the glory of the Father. And then he goes on and he says um, in verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. The second people that Jesus prays for is his own disciples. And we see there in, um, uh, what is it, verse um, 6, I've manifested your name or I've revealed you to the people you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me. A bit like a, a father gives away his daughter, a bride to the bridegroom. You know, Father, you've given me these people. And it goes on in verse 8, For I have given them your words that you have given me, and they've received them. They've come to trust in who I am. And so now Jesus goes to pray for them. And what does he pray for them? He says, uh, Holy Father, in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Keep them in your name. Now that's the ESV, the, the NLT um, it says, protect them by the power of the name that you have given me. I love that. Jesus prays for his disciples and he says, Father, will you protect them? Well, protect them from what? Well, he goes on and uh, if we go down to um, verse 14, we see that he says, I have um, given them your word and the world has hated them. Jesus is saying, Father, will you protect them because the world hates them? And, and you've got to remember, as Jesus is praying this prayer, he's praying it in a way that his disciples are hearing him talk to the Father. And so as the disciples hear Jesus pray for them and say, Father, will you protect them? They're going, yes, please pray for that. And They've experienced that. But earlier on in the night, if, if we go back to chapter 15, we see in verse 18, um, Jesus says to them, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Um, he goes on, you know, you're not of this world. You know, I'm not of this world. They hated me. They're going to hate you. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. No servant is above his master. Jesus warned them, they're going to hate you, they're going to persecute you. But then he says, just before he begins praying, look at the end of chapter 16. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. <laughs> peace in the world, no matter what happens to you, no matter how they treat you. In the world you will have many tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we see that, you know, he doesn't just face the cross and die. He overcomes death itself. What an encouragement it is. So he's saying, Father, protect them from the world because they're going to be hated. But he also says, keep them from the evil one. You notice he doesn't say, Father, will you take them out of the world? No. In fact, he says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Why? Because they've got a job to do. They've got a purpose, just like Jesus had a purpose, right? To make disciples. That you keep them from the evil one. That evil one that came against uh, Jesus in the wilderness, tempting him, tempting him. And, and how did the Father guard Jesus? 
Well, by his word, Jesus said, it is written, Satan, it is written, Satan, it is written, Satan. And we see in this passage that he says to the Father in verse 12, you know, I have kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them. I've protected them. How? I've given them your word, the truth. If you want to be protected from the evil one, you need to prioritize the word in your life, the obedience of the word in your life, understanding the word in your life. Jesus, uh, if you want to stay in that place, um, and it's uh, no surprise that he also prays, sanctify them in the truth, set them apart, sanctify them in the truth, make them holy, sanctify them. Your word is truth. <laughs> so Jesus prays for his own disciples. But then he goes on and he prays for a third person or people. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, who is that? It's us. Yeah. Now, how touching is that? That the saviour of the world who's just about to go to the cross, he says, Father, my hour has come. And yet he thinks of you. And he thinks of me. He thinks of us. Future disciples. And he prays for them. <laughs> Jesus prayed for you. That's incredible, isn't it? And this is where I want to focus our time. What does he pray for you? What does he pray for us? He says in verse 21 there, that they may all be one. That they may all be one. Now look at how many times Jesus says this in the following few verses. He says, I pray that they may all be one, just as... You, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become, what? Perfectly one. Three times. And in fact, if you go back to him praying for his own disciples, he says... Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as you are one. So at least four times, the disciples hear, and Jesus prays that they may be one. Now in Scripture, if something is repeated, or if Jesus says even a word twice, he wants people to understand the importance of what he's saying. He wants them to understand the gravity of, of what he means. He repeats it four times in this prayer that they may be one. Now, how important is it for us to grasp this? What gravity, what value does Jesus place on us being one? I think it's primary importance to him. And for the disciples listening on, they're understanding what Jesus is saying because um, let's go back to the beginning of the evening. Chapter 13, turn, turn back with me. 
chapter 13, uh, we see that Jesus, um, before the Passover feast, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to be part of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So, so he begins this night with them, and he, and he begins by washing their feet. And knowing the culture, um, usually that's the servant's job. You enter into the household and the servant would come and wash your feet. Well, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples to display them. This is what servant leadership looks like, to humble yourself, to consider others greater than yourself. And he says in verse 12 of chapter 13, um, do you understand what I've done for you? Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you this example, that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly. It's going to be hard to understand this, guys, but listen. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He shows love to them. And he's saying, do you understand? Do as I have done. Live as I have lived. I've given you an example. And he goes on, he says, you know what? One of you are going to betray me. One of you who I've washed your feet are going to betray me. I've loved all of you and I've demonstrated my love to you. And he didn't say, well, you're, you're going to betray me. I'm not going to love you anymore. To Judas. He still washed Judas's feet, right? knowing that he's going to betray him. And he goes on, you know, the one who's going to betray me, go, go and do what you need to do so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. But then he says to his disciples later on in chapter 13, verse 34, these beautiful words. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another when you feel like it. No, no. He doesn't say that, does he? That you love one another when others love you. No, no he doesn't say that either. <laughs> he says that you love one another just as I have loved you. <laughs> you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? love for one another and this i think is what jesus is getting at when the disciples hear father may they be one they're remembering back and going jesus loved us he's just told us to love one another to be one to be united to love one another and why is this so important for jesus that we be one why is it so important that we love one another sacrificially? Not when Tim loves me, I'll love him, but at all times. Not when a brother or sister is going to betray me, but at all times. Not when I feel like it, but at all times that we love one another. Why is it so important for Jesus that we be one? Well, here he says, so that the world would know, that people would know that you belong to me. Because this is how I lived. And they will see my love for them when you love them the way that I loved you. 
in the prayer, go back to chapter 17, he says that they may be one. Look at verse 21. That they may be in us so that, why? The world may believe that you have sent me. And he repeats it down in verse 23. He says that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying that God keep them as one, as they love one another, as the, the world is exposed to their love for one another, they're going to see my love for them. This is really powerful, guys. We often think of, you know, how can we help someone experience the reality of God? And we think, you know, share the word with them. Yes and amen to that. You know, share my story. Yes and amen to that. You know, go out and, and, and build relationships and, and be sharing the gospel with them. Yes and amen to that. But I've been really convicted this week personally. God has shown me that one of the greatest, if not the greatest, powerful testimony that I can bear is to expose people in my life to the loving relationships that I have with brothers and sisters in Christ. And that they can't see that if I'm not loving you. They can't see that if you're not loving me. And so this week I had to repent of that. Because sometimes I give greater value in my relationships with those who don't know Christ than my relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ. The two go hand in hand. We need to be one so that the world can see that Jesus was sent for them and that Jesus loves them. Think about it for a minute. I, I really had to wrestle with this this week. But think about how different true, loving, Christian brothers and sisters relationship is, how different that is to relationships in the world, to, to secular relationships in the world. The world says care for someone because it makes, you know, it makes you feel good. It's good to care for them, but it makes you feel good too. Jesus says care for them to make them feel better. The world says be generous because it brings you good karma. Jesus says be generous because I've been generous with you and you've received so much. The world says love them when they love you. Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who will persecute you. It's significantly different, isn't it? It's foreign to the world. The world will say, do what makes you feel happy. Jesus says, do what pleases God. Take up your cross daily for his glory for his glory. The Father would say, glorify your son so that may glorify you. The greater our love, the greater our influence 
and the, the more glory Christ receives as people come into his family. That's what he wants for his family to grow. I, I love camping. And you read a, a verse about the light this morning, Matthew, and I had a chuckle. I thought, thank you, Lord, for that confirmation of your word this morning. But when, you go, when I go camping, I often overnight switch a light on. <clears throat> and what usually happens when you switch a light on? You can see things, right? But what things are attracted to that light in no time at all? <laughs> Bugs and moths and creepy crawly things, right? They're attracted. It's, it's the same for us. If we are truly one, loving each other, there's an attraction. People want to be part of that. But the opposite's also true. If we're living a self-centred, self-serving, me-focused, bagging out other churches or gossiping about a brother and sister in Christ, bickering and fighting, we're like stinking air regard. It repels people. And they think, what hypocrites? So what's this look like? What's it look like? Turn with me to... Um, Lord, there's many places I can go here. Where do you want me to go? Go with go to Acts 4 for a moment. Acts 4, we see the reality of moss being drawn to a light and uh, the effects of Eregard. Acts 4, verse 32, who's got it? Okay, Acts 4, verse 32 says... Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So this is the early church. Uh, Jesus is in glory. And this is the believers. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That sounds like an answer to Jesus' prayer, right? And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own. Right there, I'm already challenged. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. That's just such a beautiful picture, isn't it? There was not a needy person among them. It doesn't say there wasn't a greedy person among them. It says there wasn't a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, it was distributed to each as he had need. Is that my lifestyle? Do I consider you guys greater than myself? Am I willing to sacrifice for you the way that the early church sacrificed for each other, the way that Christ sacrificed himself for his people? 
Thus Joseph, who was also called the Apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Imagine having that nickname. <laughs> a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and bought the money and laid it at the Apostle's feet. But, but a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and, his wife, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the process and bought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last breath. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her outside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were greatly done among the people by the hands of the apostle, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. You see the contrast there? They were all together, one heart, one soul. And then Ananias and Sapphira. Now, why would God judge Ananias and Sapphira so harshly? Was it that they didn't give all that they had? Was it that they kept some back? Didn't they give enough money? Why did God judge them so harshly? Hmm. Look at verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You see, this, is, this wasn't a material issue. It was a heart issue. Their heart wasn't for the concern of the body, their brothers and sisters. Their heart was for themselves to be made look good. We're giving a lot of money here. Their heart was to keep some back to consider themselves that we own this possession, this is ours, and yet the rest of the body, none of them thought any belonged to themselves. Their hearts were separated from the body. They weren't one heart and soul with the body. They lied to God. Their heart didn't represent the heart of God and it was having, could potentially have had an impact that's why they were judged so harshly. And I had to ask myself the question, which heart do I have? How do I live this way? God is saying, 
love one another, be one. How do we do that? Because there's days where I get self-centered, there's days where I get selfish, and there's days that I'm sinful. Let's be real. It's probably the same for you too. Well, I want to finish with the key that unlocks everything. John 17 again. John 17. Lord, I pray for all those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, verse 20. Just as you, Father, own me and I in you, that they also may be, what? In us. In us. We can't be one if we're not in Christ ourselves. And again, this made sense to the disciples because in verse 15, part of that night, he's just said, love one another. And he goes on and he says, you know, uh, chapter 15, he said, I'm the vine and the father is a vine dresser. Verse four, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying you, you cannot love people. You, you cannot live the way that I want you to live unless you abide in me. Jesus prays that they may be one, Father, as I and you, you and me, that they may be in us. If you're not walking closely with the Lord, if you're not living in obedience to his word, you're not living in Christ. And we cannot truly love each other the way that Christ wants us to love each other. And that's going to have a terrible influence in the world around us. But if we are encouraging one another, living in obedience to the word, the opposite's also true. We do remain in Christ. We will bear much fruit. We can love each other. And that's going to have a fantastic impact in the world around us. So let's abide. Let's abide in Christ. Let's be one, but we can't live that way unless we're in him. There's much more I could say, but we're, we're about to take communion. Again, this night, Jesus has supper with his disciples. And he says, take this in remembrance of me, remembering how much I love you, remembering the life I've called you to, remembering the value of each other. Before we have communion, maybe like me this week, you need to come to a point with God and a point of repentance. 
maybe there's been bickering between believers and you need to ask forgiveness for that. Maybe your attitude towards the church isn't Christ's attitude towards the church. And, and I get it. There could be good reason for that. There could be deep hurt in your past. Believers may have mistreated you. But Jesus' love is unconditional. And so is ours. We've got to be the ones to take the initiative to forgive to love one another, to be united. And so as we take communion this morning, Jesus is calling us to be united in him with each other. Having this common union together. to just give you a moment just to in the quietness of your seat you know how God's been talking to you this morning respond to him personally before we give thanks and we take communion together so much for your love towards us. You loved us till the end. Thank you for the ultimate act of your love of taking the penalty for our sins on the cross. and for your grace for your generosity towards us that you would look upon us the one who is worthy to throw that stone and you give us forgiveness and grace and you call us to be your people set apart not of this world, but of a kingdom reigned by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who was raised and is alive again. We thank you for giving us 
each other. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the times where we haven't loved one another, when we haven't been one. But I thank you, Lord, for the times where we have and the great joy that it is and the great blessing it is to be part of a family that loves one another. Lord, help us to love each other more deeply as you loved us. But not just for our own benefit, but so that people see that we are your disciples by our love for one another. Lord, as we take communion, we take it as one body. And we hear your prayer that they may be one so that the world may believe the Father sent you and love them. Oh Lord, thank you for communion this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for each other. May all the glory be to your name.